Greetings to all of you. I want to welcome all of us at Center Street Church, those of us uh, here at Center Campus, as well as those joining from our campus in Bearspa, Bridgeland, Airdrie, and those in South Calgary who are meeting here at Central for the time being. I also want to welcome our online viewers as well. Uh, we are continuing our study from the book of Exodus. And last weekend, we looked at Moses' first encounter with Pharaoh an encounter that didn't go as planned. Moses was commissioned by God to lead his people out of Egypt. Backed by God's authority, Moses goes to Pharaoh's palace, all guns blazing. These were his words, Pharaoh, let my people go. Enough of your oppression and harsh treatment. It is time for you to release God's people so they can be free and they can choose who they're going to serve. But Pharaoh did not respond the way Moses expected. So to start this whole thing off, there was a major setback. Moses ran into one of the most rebellious, hard-hearted individuals you will ever see in the entire Bible. Pharaoh had no interest in taking orders from slaves. Rather than freeing them, Pharaoh does the exact opposite. He tightens the screws. He applies more pressure. While in the past, the Hebrews were given straw to make bricks. Now they had to collect their own straw, and their quota of bricks will not be reduced. You know, the Israelites, on their part, thought that their deliverance from Egypt was going to happen in an instant, that they will walk royally out of Egypt into the Promised Land. And when that didn't happen, their hopes were shattered. They were discouraged, and they vented their anger against Moses. And Moses was in the center of God's will, responding in obedience to God's word, and still he faced opposition. And we concluded last weekend, that just because we are doing God's will doesn't mean life is going to be easy. Sometimes opposition serves as the evidence that we are walking in line with God's will. And Moses was disappointed. He was disappointed that God didn't come through, that he didn't keep his word, his promises have failed. You can see the disillusionment in Moses in the conversation that he has with God in Exodus 5, verses 22 and 23. Listen to these words. Moses returned to the Lord and said, Why, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble on this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. And Moses is basically saying here, Lord, I did what you asked me to do, but you didn't keep your end of the bargain. You did nothing, and I'm a laughing stock in front of Pharaoh. My own people are upset with me. Whatever happened to all of your promises? Have you been there in life when God's promises seem so far-fetched? That there is a disconnect between what God has promised and what you are presently experiencing? What do you do in times like that? Those are the times we have to stand firm on God's promises. Praying the promises of God helps us to be anchored. 
for every problem in our life, God has a promise. Our confidence is rooted in a God who is not just a promise maker, but he's a promise keeper. And the world around us may be shaky, but God's promises are unshakable. And today we're going to learn about standing strong on God's promises as we look at God's response to Moses' complaint. Uh, towards the end of this message, we will celebrate the Lord's Supper together. So if you're watching us online and you want to be part of this worship experience, then have a piece of bread and some juice ready. And towards the end of this message, we will partake of it together. Our text for today is from Exodus chapter 6, verses 1 to 12. And if you're physically able, I'll ask you to stand as we honor the reading of God's Word. Exodus 6, verses 1 to 12. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself fully known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, where they resided as foreigners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring to you, bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. Moses reported this to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because of their discouragement and harsh labor. And the Lord said to Moses, Go tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go out of his country. But Moses said to the Lord, If the Israelites will not listen to me, why would Pharaoh listen to me since I speak with faltering lips? Would you pray with me? Lord, we can think of times in our life when we felt like Moses, so down and discouraged, when we didn't make sense of what was happening in our life. And thank you, Lord, that you sustained us in those challenging seasons of life. I pray for anybody who is feeling like that today, that they will be able to hold on to the promises of God, that they will come to know and believe that you're not just a promise maker, but a promise keeper. That you will personalize this message. You will minister comfort and strength to each one of us. So draw us closer to you through this time together. And we pray this in the powerful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Most people will agree 
that the year 2020 was one of the most challenging years our generation has gone through. The onset of the pandemic was a total shock and, and it launched so many uncertainties and challenges. Now, interestingly, in an excruciatingly difficult time, people started searching for Bible passages, looking to God for comfort and strength. The popular version Bible app saw searches increase by 80% in 2020. And God's promise in Isaiah, do not fear, was the app's top Bible verse globally in 2020. Version founder Bobby Grunewald said, while 2020 is a year so many say they would like to forget, we see it as a year to remember how God used the Bible app to help so many people who are searching for answers. You know, there's something so comforting about holding on to God's promises, especially when times are dark. When everything is unstable, uncertain, when the ground around us is shaky, we need something to hold on to. And that's what God's promises are there for, to give us a sure foundation, an anchor, something to stabilize us while the situation and the circumstances may be unstable. And at a time when Moses felt, I don't understand, what just happened? God simply reminded Moses of his promises. And Moses complained, God, I did what you asked of me, but you didn't do what you said you will do. And God, in his response to Moses, is gentle. He's not rebuking him. Rather, he offers words of encouragement and reminds Moses that his promises cannot fail. So our text in Exodus chapter 6 opens with these words in verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. In response to Moses' complaint that God had done nothing so far, God says to Moses, don't judge too soon. It is going to take something more powerful than a human hand to orchestrate all of this. This is what I will do to Pharaoh. I will demonstrate my mighty hand. Now, when Moses ran into Pharaoh for the first time, had Pharaoh instantly let the people go, who do you think would have received the credit? Moses, of course. And look at Moses. What a great leader. How bold, how confident that he has stormed into Pharaoh's own palace and with such power and eloquence, he made the great Pharaoh to cave in and capitulate and led his people out. Moses would have received all the credit. But now, through Pharaoh's refusal and rebellion, everyone will know this is not about Moses. This is about the power of God, His outstretched arm that brought about this deliverance. God has a twofold response to Moses. First, God was going to reveal something about Himself, and then God will reveal what He's about to do. 
But before we know what God can do, we need to know who He is. That's where all of this starts, with a deep and personal relationship with God and understanding His character. God doesn't give Moses all the answers, but He reminds Moses of His unchanging character and the unchanging plan that He was about to execute. So here's verses 2 to 5 in our text. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself fully known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, where they resided as foreigners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. God reminds Moses that he is faithful to his covenant. That the God who is speaking now to Moses is not a God who is new to the scene. But this is the same God who has appeared to Moses' ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That God had a covenantal commitment to the Hebrews. That through Abraham, he was going to set apart a people group for himself to bless all the nations of the world. And as you read our passage here in Exodus 6, there's a phrase that distinctly stands out. It's the phrase, I am the Lord. It appears numerous times in our passage. I am the Lord. In your Bible, you will see the word Lord, L-O-R-D, all in caps. And you will see that all through the Old Testament. It is a distinct four-letter consonant in Hebrew Translated, Y-H-W-H. Now, ancient Hebrew was a consonant-only language. And because of the lack of vowels, there is a debate as to how to pronounce this term, Y-H-W-H. Scholars use their best guess to add the vowels to Y-H-W-H. And that is how they come up with the name Yahweh, the name of God. So, Lord, L-O-R-D, all caps in your Bible, is Y-H-W-H, which is translated Yahweh. Now, we can know for sure how to say this word Yahweh. This is only our best guess. The word Yahweh means He who is. That He is a self-existent God who's not dependent upon anything. And look at the tense. This is not he was or he will be, but he is. He is the God who is always in the present. So in Exodus chapter 3, at the burning bush, when Moses specifically asks God for his name, God says, my name is I am. And it is linked to this word Yahweh. So he is or I am signifies he's the God of the present. God says to Moses, I am the same God, the God of your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I made a covenant with them. And because I am a covenant-keeping God, I have come now to fulfill this. Now, it's interesting here in verse 3. God says, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob 
as God Almighty. There will be an asterisk in your Bible next to the word God Almighty. And if you look below at the bottom of the page, you will see the phrase Hebrew, El Shaddai. So that phrase, God Almighty, in Hebrew is El Shaddai, a God who is mighty and powerful. That phrase, El Shaddai, occurs six times in the book of Genesis. And each time the emphasis is on God's power, His strength, and His provision. And here's the first occurrence of El Shaddai in the book of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 17, verses 1 and 2. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord Yahweh appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty, El Shaddai. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Now, I've never interviewed a 99-year-old. My best guess is, while they are dealing with aches and pains at age 99, the last thing on their mind is making babies and populating the earth. Now, you think about making babies when you're 29, not 99. So here we have a 99-year-old Abraham who has no child through his wife Sarah, and God has this staggering promise that he was going to bless him and he was going to make him a father of many nations. That through this one man and his lineage, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Now anybody who hears this promise will come to know that this is not about Abraham and Sarah and their ability to orchestrate it or bring it into fruition. The onus is on God, God Almighty, El Shaddai, who's able to bring about this promise. It is in our frailties that we see how potent God is. It is in our weaknesses that God demonstrates His strength. And the spotlight here is on El Shaddai, a God who can bring all things to pass by virtue of His power. Nothing is impossible for this God. And God is saying to Moses, that is who I am. Now, Moses, you judged me too quickly that I didn't show up. I want you to know that I am El Shaddai, the God who is powerful and strong and able to fulfill all of my promises. That's how God had revealed himself to the patriarchs, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And notice what God says here in verse 3. And here's the interesting part. He says, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, as El Shaddai. But by my name, the Lord, Yahweh, I did not make myself fully known to them. This is a difficult verse to understand because it appears God is saying the name Lord, translated Yahweh, is not a name by which Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob knew God. That this new name, Yahweh, was revealed only to Moses. But here's the problem. When you read the book of Genesis, you will see that the name Lord, L-O-R-D, all caps, Yahweh, is already used in the book of Genesis. 
So the patriarchs did refer to God as Yahweh. So in what sense did the patriarchs then did not know this name? So that's the dilemma. A reasonable explanation is they knew the name Yahweh, but they did not have a deeper knowledge of the name. Now here's an illustration that will help you understand this. Anyone who attends Center Street Church on a regular basis may know my name because you see me preaching. Sometimes when I'm outside in a mall, in a restaurant, in a park, I'll inevitably run into somebody from Center Street Church who recognizes me, which means I always have to be on my best behavior, too much pressure. <laughs> but then there are some people who know me because I have a personal relationship with them. So they know me not only because they hear me preach, but we have a, a deeper connection. Maybe they serve in my area of ministry. Maybe they lead a group in Northeast Calgary. And I, I may have done a wedding or a funeral for a family. I may have sat with them and provided spiritual care and prayed for them. I may have been to their home and they might have come to our home. So they know me a lot more than those who know me only by way of my preaching. And then there's my wife and our four children who know me personally and intimately because we live in the same home. Now, I'm one individual, but people know me at varying levels. So in the same way, the patriarchs knew God and His power on the one hand. But the knowledge of God as Yahweh was limited. And what God is saying here is, through the event of the Exodus and this act of deliverance, Moses and all of Israel will come to know God in a deeper way. The Exodus will help them to understand God experientially. That they will know that God is the great I am, that He is present with them, that He is able to keep all of His promises. The Exodus will put the spotlight on God's character and His glory, and as a result of this encounter, the Israelites will know God in a deeper way. So when Moses was discouraged, quickly concluded that God has not done anything on his part, God revealed to him his character. Moses, you can count on me because I am a covenant-keeping God. Now, after revealing his character, God goes on to show the plans that he was about to execute. Now, the book of Exodus is a foreshadow of the gospel. Yes, it is the story of God's people in the Old Covenant, but it's also a pointer that points to the story of God's people in the New Covenant. The Exodus of the Old Testament is a signpost to the greater Exodus that was accomplished by Jesus through His death and resurrection. 
And there are four powerful gospel truths here in our text. And these are gospel promises right here in the book of Exodus that will be amplified and clarified in the New Testament. And these are the promises that we can hold on to. This is what anchors our faith. No matter how hard life gets, these promises are unchanging. They are the bedrock, the foundation of our faith. And if we can hold on to these promises, we can be unshakable, no matter our circumstances. Here's the first gospel promise in our text. Look at the first part of verse 6. Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. God is speaking here of liberation. And that is the first gospel promise in our text in Exodus. Pharaoh and all of Egypt had placed a heavy yoke on the Israelites. And they were reeling under this weight. There's nothing that Israel could do to free themselves from this yoke. No amount of their striving will help them to break free from the iron hand of Pharaoh. And because of this enslavement, they didn't have the ability to serve God or worship Him. And God says here in Exodus 6, I will free you, I will liberate you from this yoke of slavery. And that's here in Exodus. What does the New Testament teach us? The New Testament talks about a greater bondage. The power of sin that has enslaved the entire human race. For we all have sinned and fallen short of God's standards. So in the world today, we are regularly confronted by the problem of evil. But here is the troubling part. Evil is not something that is out there, but it resides within the human heart. A newspaper editor once asked a, a question to famous people with the intent of publishing their response. And this was the question that he sent out. What is wrong with the world today? G.K. Chesterton responded with what was one of the, the briefest responses to this question, but hit the nail on the head. This was Chesterton's response to the editor. Dear sir, in response to your question, what is wrong with the world today? I am yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. I am the problem. Evil is not just out there, but it springs from within us. And as much as we are deluded into thinking that we are free, our human race is in deeper bondage, unable to break free from the crushing weight of our sins. It is in light of this dark news that we can see the good news and the beauty of the gospel. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 6, 22, 
But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. Now, the good news of the gospel is we are no longer under this yoke being subjected to our sinful nature, but we have been set free through faith in Jesus Christ. For the Bible says, who the Son sets free is free indeed. Total freedom is found in Jesus Christ alone. And we celebrate our freedom in Christ, but we also recognize We've been made free, not so we can go our own way and do whatever we want, but we've been freed so we can now bring our lives under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Just as the Israelites were freed from slavery in Egypt so that they can bring their lives under the reign of God, in the same way we are freed from our sin through the shed blood of Jesus, so we can now serve Him wholeheartedly. And this is the paradox of the Christian life. We are freed from slavery to sin. We are free indeed. But we voluntarily surrender that freedom and bring our lives under the Lordship of Jesus Christ and live as His slaves. So that is the first gospel promise of liberation found here in Exodus, amplified and clarified in the New Testament. Look at the next gospel promise in our text, the last part of verse 6. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. Here's the second gospel promise. Redemption. God says here, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. Redemption is a financial term. The word carries the idea of purchasing something. In the ancient marketplace, it was used to describe the payment of a price to free a slave. In Old Testament times, if a member of a family was in debt and ended up selling themselves as slaves, it was the responsibility of the closest family member to redeem them by paying the price and bail them out. That way, the person and their family in debt don't have to be slaves forever, but their closest relative has come to their rescue. And what do we see in Exodus? God's people, the Israelites, are in bondage and in slavery. And who comes to their rescue? God has come to their rescue because He is the one closest to them. And He takes that responsibility of a family member. God says He is concerned about their suffering. He comes to their rescue to redeem them from their slavery. So that is Exodus. What do we see as we turn the pages of the Bible, come to the New Testament? In the New Testament, we see clearly 
Jesus is our Redeemer. That He pays for our sins. His debt on our behalf cancels all that we owe. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7, it says, In Him, in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. We have redemption through Jesus' blood. The ransom has already been paid. So in that sense, Jesus is the Passover lamb that Exodus talks about. In fact, the entire sacrificial system of the Old Testament points to this greater sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. God himself pays the price through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ so we can be free, forgiven, cleansed, and be released from the power of sin. And that moment when we are washed in the blood of Jesus, we receive forgiveness for our sins. We experience redemption. There's another gospel truth here in our text. Look at verse 7. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptian. Here's yet another gospel promise right here in Exodus. Adoption. God's plan was not just to free Israel and redeem them from their slavery, but His plan was to create a people group for Himself. And through this act of redemption, they will come to know the character of the one who redeemed them. And they will see God's salvation more clearly by way of the Exodus. 400 years of slavery... A deliverance from Egypt was not the end of the story, but it was only the beginning of the story. For they will now be God's people and live out their lives as ambassadors of God's kingdom. That's in Exodus. What does the New Testament teach us? Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. But when the set time had fully come, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. God not only redeems us from our sins, but He changes our core identity. The word adoption used there in Galatians is a legal term. It is speaking of the full legal standing of an adopted heir. That they are not second class in any way. They are not a step down, but they have the same rights and privileges as biological children. So we who are far off, living in bondage to our sin are not only freed from it, not only are we redeemed, 
But God adapts us into his own family. We become sons and daughters of the living God so we can now confidently live out of this new identity. And if you are in awe of this incredible promise, there's something more in the text. Yet another gospel promise to blow our mind. Look at verse 8. And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. And the final gospel promise in the text is inheritance. We have liberation, Redemption, adoption, and inheritance. You know, God's people were slaves in Egypt. He sets them free. He redeems them. But he doesn't leave them there. He adopts them into his own family. They now have a, a new identity. They have a new relationship. They have a personal connection with God. And if that is not enough, God lavishes them with an inheritance. They receive the gift of a land flowing with milk and honey. And God says to them, you've suffered enough in Egypt. You face such oppression and harsh treatment. Now I will bless you with a land that is so lush, so fertile, that you can live here happily. You can raise your family and you will have no fears of any sort because that is my inheritance to you. So that is Exodus. What does the New Testament teach us about inheritance? Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. However, as it is written, what no eye has seen what no ear has heard and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love Him. If you are a Christian, the best is yet to come. That's the inheritance that awaits us. And this is so glorious, so mind-blowing, that the scripture says there are absolutely no words to describe this future reality that awaits us as Christ's followers. And as God's people, when our life here on earth comes to an end, God has promised that we will reign with him in the new heaven and the new earth. That we will dwell in the very presence of God and there will be no more sorrow, no more pain, no more sickness, no more death. God himself will wipe all our tears. That is the inheritance that awaits us. And as followers of Christ, when we lose a loved one, we grieve, we mourn, but we don't grieve without hope because we know that the one who has passed away in the faith has not just slipped into oblivion, 
But they have entered the very presence of God to receive the inheritance that God has marked out for them. That is the enormous comfort that God's promises bring to us. It brings to my mind that old Jim Reeves song. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door, and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. The inheritance that awaits us is so glorious, so spectacular, that the riches and the pleasures of this world pales in comparison. John Newton, who wrote the famous hymn, Amazing Grace. John Newton said, the church should not complain, murmur, or despair because of our circumstances. Why so? Newton gave a helpful illustration to drive home his point. He said, Imagine a person who inherits millions of dollars as Esther. And all this person has to do is to go to New York City to claim their rightful inheritance. So they get on this horse carriage for a trip to New York to collect their inheritance. And the person heads out on this horse carriage and they're just a mile away from New York when their carriage breaks down. With just one mile left, Newton said, all they had to do is now walk the rest of the way to claim their glorious inheritance. And he says, can you imagine that person kicking and screaming and complaining in disgust. My carriage is broken. My carriage is broken. And Newton says, when faced with trials and difficulties, Christian, remember, we only have a few miles to go. Only a few miles. I don't know about you, that gives me a, a whole lot of perspective. So I don't have to get discouraged when life gets rough, when the weather is stormy, when things happen that makes absolutely no sense. And rather than dwelling on the things that I don't understand, I remind myself that I am a lot closer to the final destination than when I first started. And I rely on the promises of God that His grace will take me to the finish line. And as we conclude our service, after hearing these precious gospel promises, that we can anchor our lives upon. It's only fitting that we conclude our service by celebrating the Lord's Supper. Because this is a profound act of worship. 
The Lord's Supper is not just a ritual that we do every now and then, but it's a culmination of our worship experience. We commune with Christ. Jesus has liberated us. He has redeemed us, adopted us, and He has promised us an inheritance that will never perish. All these four precious gospel promises are visually represented through this meal that we celebrate called the Lord's Supper. When we eat the bread, when we drink the cup, we are remembering these gospel promises. We are allowing these promises to become personal once again. Liberation, redemption, adoption, inheritance. So let me ask you, are you still in bondage? Or has Christ fully set you free? If you feel the weight of your sin, if your heart is overwhelmed by your guilt, then cry out to Him. Believe even right now that Jesus died in your place, that He bore your punishment. And as you open your heart to Him, you can receive the free gift of salvation right now. And as you receive that gift, as you embrace that gift, you can also join with us in celebrating the Lord's Supper. Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 to 28, it says, while they were eating, Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. At this time, you can take the elements that were distributed to you and you can open the wrapper and as we're doing that why don't we all stand to our feet what we are holding in our hands are visual reminders of gospel promises just in case we forget just in case we need that little reminder. That's what this meal does. Once again, it helps our heart to be in tune with the promises of God so we can commune with Christ, express our gratitude for what He has done for us. Let's close our eyes for a moment. Express our thanks to Jesus for what He has done for the price that He paid. And as we close our eyes, let's prepare our hearts to meaningfully partake of these elements.
Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. The body of Jesus was broken so we can be liberated from our sins and redeemed from our transgressions. The price has already been paid. Let's partake of this bread with gratitude. The blood of Jesus was shed so we can be adopted into God's family as sons and daughters and we can live our lives today looking forward to the glorious inheritance that awaits each one of us when we will see Jesus face to face. Let's partake of this with gratitude.